0: And now, today's podcast episode.
1: Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Hey, awesome. Life is great. I'm a little hoarse today. I don't know why. I didn't do a lot of talking yesterday, but my voice is uh, a little crackly. It's
2: from all the drinking.
1: Uh, I, I actually did have some drinks last night, and maybe, maybe too many. I don't know if that's <laughs> possible.
2: <laughs> I, I noticed that if I drink too much, my voice tends to get louder without it meaning to, and then the next day I'm hoarse.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. That explains a lot now for me. Thank you. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm good. Awesome. Awesome. We uh, we're just having a little bit of a technology issue. So our guest will be with us here shortly. Um, Before we kind of get to there, what, uh, what kind of things is, uh, is Mikel working on uh, this week or what kind of things have kind of confronted you?
2: Oh, let's see. Just lots of up and down with the coronavirus stuff, which I'm sure everybody is feeling. It's it's hard to know. Like I, w- I was talking to one of our friends, and she was saying that some of the projections show that we'll be in this kind of slow uptick until October, and that I lost my shit. I can't do this until October.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, we're... It, it is strange. We're in... Um it's like this thing is happening and it is right. Like the, the, the cities are facing it one way we're facing it another. Right. Um, and here we are again, for those listening or watching that, uh, that don't live in Southern Utah, Southern Utah has very few cases still.
2: 52 cases of, um, well, let's see Southwest Utah, 52 cases, um, which includes Washington County, Iron County, Garfield yeah. Kane counties. So,
1: and it's not growing exponentially here. It's, no, it's a little slower than that because, again, social distancing is helping. But also, we're more of like suburb, rural type of community. Um, looks like our guest is here. So, um, but yeah, the the uh, way that we're all kind of and I kind of hear like a like a reverberation of what I'm saying in your from your speakers. <laughs> I don't know if maybe yeah you. So I don't know if you can maybe just turn your air, your uh, earbud uh, earbuds down just a little bit. If you can turn the volume down just a touch, but, um, I'm going to add Ryan here, Ryan. Good morning. Good morning, guys. So Mikel and I were just talking about, uh, COVID-19 and how, uh, we live in a different area than the big Metro cities that are getting nailed. And it almost requires multiple approaches depending on your geographic location. And for those in suburbs or rural areas, it's a whole different kind of thing. Watching this unfold slowly, right?
3: Yeah, I believe so. It seems like, uh, especially areas that have really dense living, they seem to have suffered a lot more early on. I don't know how this will spread as yeah. things continue. Yeah. I mean, it is lower to the suburbs and the rural areas, but I don't know.
1: Yeah, Mikkel was sharing that, you know, she's a little scared by the projections of how long this may go on that we have to socially distance from each other. And I'm with her. This thing is unfolding so slow here. If you were in New York City, you'd be like, hell yes, stay inside. Like, let's do that. Um, but here in you know in southern Utah, you're you're just kind of watching this unfold slowly, and you're missing being around folks and and being around the people you care about, and to watch this thing be projected out. You know, Mikkel is saying October, but maybe longer, maybe shorter, but it it certainly has disrupted all of our lives.
3: Yeah, quite disrupting. Yeah, it's, it's an odd feeling just being out in public. I I uh, personally start to feel a little like uh, even a little anxiety just being anywhere in public. Just
1: yeah. Yeah, I
3: don't
1: know if if you saw that. We have a sign for customers to stop at and leave about seven foot of room between them and me. And some customers just think this is all fake news, and they just walk right past the sign, right up to my face, and put their dirty television two inches from me, and and don't give me a chance to kind of control the interaction the way I want to. And uh, and I've even had people cough on me. I had one lady; she came in yesterday wearing gloves to protect herself from me. And then got in my face, breathing in my face, and I'm like, "Lady, how about how about you protect me from you too?" <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, Mikkel, uh, tell us what we got here. Who's this? Who's this guy? Who's this guy with us today? What's going on here?
2: So today we reached out to one of our good friends, Ryan Polson. He's the first responder, and uh, we just wanted to get his perspective, pick his brain a little bit, hear about his story. And so we're super glad that he could be here. Glad to be here, guys. Like the last time I saw you, I don't think you had it, but I love it. I think it's hot.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun. I I grow
1: it and shave it. and Grow it, and shave it. <laughs> dude, coming from a lesbian, if a lesbian tells you your mustache is hot, dude, that's a hot mustache. I <laughs> take it right. I mean, right? Like, like when a lesbian gives a compliment to it for for us guys, uh, it man, it feels like it's a whole other kind of thing, huh? <laughs> I, I
3: really appreciate it. <laughs>
1: Um, so I guess I just, I guess I want to ask this and I know I've asked you this at dinner before Ryan, but how did you even get into being, being a fireman and uh, a paramedic and being an emergency first responder? How did, how did this even come about? Tell us the story. Well, um, I guess almost
3: accidentally <laughs> I'd always been interested in, in medicine and medical stuff. And, uh, that was my original path and that's what I kind of studied in college, um, I got, I took an EMT class to uh, get some practical experience, Uh, you know, prior to my my intent was to apply to medical school. And that led to becoming more and more involved in the EMS side of things and uh, volunteered and then worked for a while in a hospital and then started working on an ambulance. And I really grew to love that. And then uh, that turned into me turning this into a career. Yeah, that's kind of how it developed.
2: Ryan, what's what is like the your most favorite part about being an EMT or firefighter? And and do you do both?
3: I, I do both. I do both. I'm you know I, I am a firefighter, um, but just as with most uh, fire departments and agencies, um, the vast majority of our response is medical response, and so I am also a paramedic, and so uh, my primary uh, job. Uh, as when we r- arrive on medical scenes as, uh, as, as a paramedic and so I act in that capacity as a, a medical professional I guess on scene um, but as far as what I enjoy about it um, it's incredibly satisfying I mean it sounds trite but uh, helping people uh, especially in times of crisis when things have you know come off the rails for them and a lot of times that's when we respond we get called when people's lives have become uncontrollable and so we try to bring a, a sense of control back to them at that time. Um, so that's incredible.
2: What's the difference between an EMT and a paramedic?
3: So uh, paramedics are EMTs, okay. but um, it, there, there's kind of a leveled system. It's like three tiers. There's an EMT basic, um, which is the, you know, kind of the base level. They, uh, they have basic skills. They respond. Um, you'll find basics in a lot of rural systems. There's a EMT intermediate or uh, uh, they call them inter- uh, EMT advanced. In some areas, they they add a layer of skills and and abilities and a scope of practice at that level. And then um, kind of in the field, uh, the next level up is, is a paramedic. And paramedics are uh, kind of, we kind of have the, the broadest scope of practice and uh, have the most advanced skills and the most training uh, in EMS, if that makes sense.
1: You know, you talked about giving people control back. I, I got to imagine, and I, I want to at some point to get into some of the cases that you've seen that were on the extreme side. But when you say, like, I go into the home and, and part of our job, and I think this is a beautiful thing, is to help give people back a sense of control in situations that they feel helpless in. Um, talk me through that. Like, what's what do you mean by that? Like, how do you, what are things that first responders do to help people feel less helpless?
3: Um, Yeah. So depending on the emergency, if if it's a medical emergency, someone might be feeling something or um, have a symptom or, you know, maybe they had a fall and broke something. Uh, And they're, sometimes they don't know what they have going on. That's quite frequently the case. And sometimes they know what basically is going on and they're trying to figure out what to do about it. And so a lot of people, when When they lose control, they call 911, and we show up and try to fix that problem. The same is true with a a fire emergency or a vehicle accident, or you know, lost in the desert, or any of those any of those kind of calls. Something's gone wrong where they've lost control of the circumstance. Um, Sometimes that's just giving, as far as giving them back control. Sometimes that's just you know, giving them a little bit of information. Hey, here's what's going on. Here's your options. Here's how you can go. Here's how about how you can go about. Um, repairing that situation. Um, sometimes that's, you know, taking control of the situation and, you know, up to and including like innovating people or performing CPR or, you know, putting someone's house uh, that's on fire out. So all those different options. And and truly it's, it's quite diverse, all the different calls we get in all kinds of calls for all kinds of stuff.
2: Ryan, so how, how do you maintain your sense of control and not panic during those situations? Because I'm sure that, like, and, and I imagine initially you probably had a lot of anxiety or, you know, stress yourself trying to figure out how, do, how am I going to manage the situation and how am I going to help my patient feel calm and in control when I'm feeling like, blah. <laughs> uh,
3: it, it's like anything in anyone's life. I think when you first are exposed to it, it's, uh, it's jarring a little bit you feel like a fish out of water, uh, you do feel that those anxieties um, as you become exposed to things, especially things that you see over and over and over again. Um, the more often you see those, you kind of understand the arc of how this thing will go about or go down, um, how you need to respond to it the most appropriately. And so training goes a long way. Um, experience goes a long way um, in calming those kind of anxieties down. Um, but there's always stuff that comes up that surprises you. And In the end there, I I guess just being exposed to that experience over and over and over again, feeling um, something unexpected come on and then dealing with it, that in and of itself itself becomes a skill that you kind of develop.
2: So COVID's no big deal for you right now. Like you don't feel any anxiety. You're like the master of controlling.
3: Not at all. No? Not at all. This this thing's a little bit more, um, at least for me, uh, you know, we we don't see pandemics every day. Right. Right. And so, and when you start digging in the literature a little bit, like the, uh, the are not like how many people can be uh, exposed by each individual because of the long time it takes to show symptoms of this thing. uh, Those things are really concerning and not that I worry about myself. I'm relatively young, relatively healthy, and I don't have a whole lot of preexisting medical problems. The thing I worry about is I know I'm exposed to work. You know, I ran patients who have active cases and then, how do I interact with, you know, my family at home? Right. And then, and then, yeah, like for for me, this like social distancing thing, I I no longer go into the stores <laughs> because I just don't feel comfortable being out there. Like my parents, they have a lot of medical problems right now, and I don't, I can't be around them. So we try to help what we can, but I have to be very cautious about how I interact with the public.
2: Sure, it's so interesting. I um, Kelsey and I haven't been to the store in a while, but we. Get our kids this week, and so we went to the grocery store um, yesterday to just make sure we, you know, had stuff. And um, it it's like it's super eerie in the store. Um, it's eerie interacting with other people who are are practicing social distancing. And like Bill said, um, it's really interesting um, watching people who who think this is all um, a hoax and it's not real. And you can tell that they don't they don't care. And, and it'd be interesting to find out what their rationale is. Um, Kelsey and I were talking a lot about conspiracy theories and the psychology behind conspiracy theories, and it's just interesting. Um, and and you know, in in my position, I've been it's been a week and a couple of days since I've been at the clinic. Um, they've they've scaled family medicine back greatly, so I haven't interacted with patients in a while. Um, but I can't imagine, like, how are you and Lara handling that? Like, what, what are things that you're doing at home or when you get home um, to try and protect your family? And um, where do you see this going? How do you see this playing out?
3: Uh, well, as, as far as, like, my routine, I've, I've always been a little bit cautious about what I bring home from work. And so, like, my standard is before I leave work, I, I, I shower there and then change into my street clothes and come home that way. And so then... When I'm home, then same kind of thing. I take those precautions. I mean, here at home, hand watching's probably even gotten a little bit more involved, I guess. Um, but when I'm here with my family, my kids, they're all home and they're not going anywhere. So um, we just interact as a family the way we, we normally would here. The only thing that's changed is really the kids aren't going out. Um, when we have to do shopping, my wife has to do the, the shopping. Um, I do have a mask for her that she can take out at that point. So that, because again, not, not that I'm worried about her getting anything out there, it's
1: what I might transmit. So. I, uh, I'm curious, Ryan, like, you know, this is the almost awakened podcast. We've, I know you personally, I know that you are very uh, much on this side of life and, and thinking critically about things. Um, how, like being a paramedic, being a fireman coming up on scenes with tragedy, with people's lives in the balance, Uh, I'm just, I'm just curious your thoughts on like on this side of things, how you for good or for bad, how being, how being a critical thinker, how being aware of how messy the world is, how complicated things are, how complex uh, things are, how much that goes into like how you handle situations and, and how you interact with people. Any thoughts there on, on being kind of an awakened person and, uh, and dealing with people kind of like you pointed out earlier in their, in their worst moments when, when they're scared to death and, 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 and have no idea like how this situation is going to turn out and, and as tragedy is kind of right happening right before your eyes.
3: Hmm. Um, that's a really good question. Uh, Bill. And I guess, I guess for me, one of the most interesting things and it's, and it's really affected the way that I view life is um, you can watch people, in, in intense or extreme circumstances, and they're trying to make sense of their experience. whatever the experience they're having is is beyond typically what they've normally experienced. And so you can see them trying to make meaning out of that, how to how to create a narrative of how to make the experience they're experiencing right now fit in the greater narrative of their life. And so um, and, and I can mm. see that with people. Yeah. I also have experienced that myself. Um, as part of, um, like when we have a, a, re- re- a really critical call or a particularly tough call, like a, you know, pediatric call or um, a, a bad trauma or something like that, we typically have what's called a, a critical incident stress debriefing, with a, a chance where we pull everybody who's involved in the call aside. And basically, everyone just gets the chance to talk about what they experienced. And it's not like it's a deep sharing of feelings, it's just kind of almost recounting a narrative of what's they've seen and what they've experienced and it may seem kind of like a trivial thing but the interesting thing is is you can kind of feel a difference when you're able to take what you've experienced and fit that into kind of the narrative or the story of your life um and i guess that helps me understand being awakened because it's like once you become aware that you're creating stories and you watch other people do it especially in extreme circumstances the uh the differences between the reality of the experience and the narrative that we kind of tell ourselves about the experience becomes highlighted, if that makes sense. Um, And so uh, I became aware, kind of through these experiences, I became aware of that narrative making experience. And once you're aware of that, it kind of awakens you to the fact of all the things that are going on around you aren't necessarily, especially the way you remember them or the way you tell yourself a story about what happened. you become aware that you're actually telling a story. You're not experiencing it or even re-experiencing it. You are, you are creating a narrative and that, uh, that changes your perspective, I believe a lot. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, the process, like, again, taking a moment aside to kind of get together with the group. But as I look as I, as you said that I'm thinking back to, uh, other facets of life types of therapies and types of experiences where people are trying to be, more expansive in their thought meditation practices, for instance, um, when somebody goes into a group like uh, AA or um, other places where you get a chance to sit and talk, there's there's such importance in getting together with other people who are sharing in a similar life experience or maybe even the same experience per, you know, perhaps as you going on the scene. And to get together with the rest of the crew and to have a chance to talk and kind of process – it also gives it gives the 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 newbies a chance to hear how the veterans deal with these kinds of things. Um, I got to I got to think that's kind of an important piece of setting it aside at the end of the day and going home to your family and not carrying this kind of stuff with you.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, you're listening to a group of people that you have some connection with at least, um, and the, I mean, a lot of those connections become quite tight. And so um, yeah, you're, you're not just constructing your own narrative, but kind of a group narrative there too on, on how to deal with this or how everyone else is dealing with this. Yeah. That gets thrown out, I guess, not explicitly, but implicitly. Yeah. That's absolutely being kicked around in the room.
2: Ryan, um, I'm sure that you deal with a lot of loss and, um, death and so how do you handle those situations and have, have your own views on death changed, um, since you've been in your career?
3: Uh, yes, very significantly. Um, when i came into this career i had uh, a pretty firm belief in a in a religious style uh, afterlife and um, i viewed death in a specific way um, i'd been raised uh, in a religious upbringing and so i would sit uh, in church or listen to people who my you know had the same religious background and they would recount stories and, and tell about these kind of faith-promoting experiences. And a lot of times those would revolve around these really extreme kind of circumstances. Um, and when I first came into the profession and I started experiencing those, the, those kind of experiences with people, um, but not as the experiencer, not the person who was involved, I was more of an observer. I got to watch someone else go through those experiences uh, over and over and over again. Um, you could you could kind of see how that that old narrative that I'd always kind of subscribed uh, subscribe to kind of started to fall apart. I would watch people um, have an experience, and I saw it. I mean, they're observing it in one way, and then I would hear people recount the experience, and in a different way. Especially, if I worked and lived in the same community, and so there were times when I would run across people I knew and and hear them kind of recount the experience or. Um, when I would, uh, you know, be sitting in a, in a church meeting and listening to people recount their experiences. And it was a little bit jarring occasionally because I hear this experience, I'm like, oh, they're describing this. And I've observed that before, but they're giving it a totally different meaning. And and so it started to kind of undermine, undermine that narrative that I'd grown up with. Um, and the the meaning making, I guess, that I'd always been handed, I started to have to kind of, rethink that and develop uh, a new narrative that more closely fit the things that I was observing. And so it's, it's changed it a ton for the last several years.
1: Yeah. And I want to, I want to ask a kind of another question along with what Mikel just said, which is juxtapose those two. So on the first half of your career up to this point, you, you came into it with this rel- these religious beliefs and you had this confidence that if you, if one of these folks who's having these tragic moments, if they died and people do die, you've seen it, yeah. um, they're going to heaven, they're going back to to God, they're going back to be with their family. And then on this side of things, that kind of certainty doesn't exist, and maybe we believe something completely different. Juxtapose those. Like what is that? How did you, how did your narrative um, come into play as you go into homes that, with tragedy happening? both on one side as a believer with confidence that it's going to be okay in the end. And then now with, with that certainty being kind of deconstructed and now you go into situations knowing like, ah, you know, life is precious and maybe all we have is this moment.
3: Yeah. Um, so on one side is, is kind of like a, a, a little more, I guess like a magical view where people believe a lot of things. And, And I guess those stories can be quite comforting. Um, I'll reference like the life of Pi, the book or the movie, Dependent of Energy. And he talks about how he's he tries to give this kind of horrific experience. And um, and he finds a, a different story to tell it. And so those that kind of those myths, those myths, I guess I'll call them, um, those can be comforting from from the onset. But the problem with them and the problem with my worldview as I started is that as it kind of came up against um, Uh, repetitive extreme experiences uh it, it was it was a fragile uh narrative it was a fragile life experience um what it didn't do is it didn't map very well onto reality and as i had more and more of those experiences um that worldview became very very challenging to hold because it wasn't lining up with what i was observing in the world and so on one side i say you know it was adapted in that it allowed me to um, deal with a small amount of of problems and disappointments um but that worldview or the worldview that i was that I kind of started this whole thing with um became very fragile and kind of broke apart and just by observing the experiences over and over again um contrast to what i'm i'm living now um it's not a the worldview i have right now is not as comforting in some ways but it's more resilient. It's stronger uh, in the long term because what it does is it maps up against reality much, much, much better. And so I feel like I gave something up to hold the worldview I hold now. Um, but in the end, it's a stronger worldview. It's a worldview that the, nar- the narrative holds with reality a little closer. I'm not pretending that my, nar- my worldview, you know, maps perfectly onto reality, but but it maps much closer. And so I don't. When I observe something, I don't get surprised by it as much. It uh, and it doesn't uh, cause my cause a, a complete remodeling of how I'm viewing things in the world.
2: So, Ryan, what would you say have been some of the most influential things to help you shift that worldview? Um, I'm particularly interested in how you've learned to manage the stress and the anxiety that the job brings because, you know, as, as a nurse practitioner, I'm in family medicine, so I don't deal with emergencies very often, but I find that whenever something unexpected or emergent comes up, I have a lot of anxiety. So like, I want to know some tools or resources that you've used um, to help you navigate.
3: Um, So I I use a lot of things. Um, I I do some meditation, uh, which I enjoy that. Um, I'm not great at that, but, um, you know, I probably a couple times a week do a little bit of meditation. That that helps me a lot. Um, I read a lot uh, and um, I find myself reading a lot of books about social science and psychology and those kind of uh, books. And I find that the the better I understand, uh, you know, this lump of stuff between my ears, like the better I understand that and how the brain reacts to all kinds of problems, the the better off I am. Um, the more I understand um yeah, the, 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 just like anything, I guess I, I'm i kind of a guy who likes to understand what's going on. Once I kind of understand what's going on, I feel a lot a lot less anxiety, a lot less uh, stress about it. And so I find that that, that stuff helps me out a lot.
1: Curious, uh, what are some of the, the extreme situations you have come up on? Maybe two or three of the just you know, all hell broke loose or, or somebody was just... In the midst of some horrific moment, I'd love to know, like, um, you know, essentially what some of those situations kind of look like. It, you know, I just I, I've sold carpet half my adult life, and I've worked in a pawn shop uh, now for several years, and I'm not seeing any kind of medical emergencies here. I'm just curious. I'm sure a lot of listeners are interested in what that field looks like because there's got to be moments where the adrenaline's really gone.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of I get asked that question a lot. Like, well, tell me something you see, and it's like, ah, uh, ah. Uh let me think Uh, because it, it does kind of end up being like, you know, like paintings on the wall a little bit. Like you just, it's stuff that you live with and and see as normal. Um, But uh, you know, one of the, I guess I'll hit something that kind of, it it was emotionally jarring to me at the time was the very, like, I was a brand new EMT basic. I was in school and the first um, time they ever sent me to do a clinical rotation through the emergency department, I walked in the door was like got about five minutes of a, a, a little bit of an orientation from somebody. And then one of the instructors who was teaching the class I was enrolled in, rolled in uh, off the ambulance with a, with a patient with a I think she's like 13-year-old girl who had been injected from a car. And um, she was in a, a seat collar. She was on a backboard. And she had a, a huge laceration across her, her the whole top of her head. And like one of the MTs was holding the head. And I was like, well, and she's like, come here quick. And she had me hold the head. And as I re- put my hands down with the gloves on on this thirteen-year-old girl, I'm looking at her. I'm, I'm seeing that her kind of her scalp is opening up. If I release at all, first it starts bleeding a ton, but then like literally her face starts to kind of slump down. And so I held her, and it was it was probably I don't know. I I spent about three hours with that patient that day, holding her head just because that was I was a bandage. <laughs> I a, a large Band-Aid that day, but I got to interact with her parents as they came in. And, you know, we went through CT and that whole experience, uh, all the x-rays that were performed and the blood work and all that stuff um, before they finally sent her up to have that, uh, that wound closed up. Um, but it was quite jarring initially because I, I had I, I absolutely had that uh, feeling like, I mean, I should not be allowed to do this. Someone should find a professional to come do what I'm doing because this is, uh, this is too much for me. Um, I just remember seeing, just seeing that and, and, experiencing it for the first time. And I still have elements of that when I come across something that's like, wow, I'm not used to seeing that.
1: Um, I guess it has to be, was, it has to be really I, tough with kids. It has to be when you come up on a scene with young people, children, uh, young, young adults, teenagers, whatever it be, that's gotta be, that's gotta be kind of the most heart-wrenching moments.
3: Uh, yeah, it, it is. And And I think it's particularly heart-wrenching, like when my kids were those ages, like, you know, I ran a of drownings when my kids were young and those same ages. And that was, that was tough. Um, More recently, a few years ago, as my my kids started getting into teenage years, um, we had a call with a a car, I think it was four or five, I believe it was four uh, kids in a a car that was traveling at a, probably 80 miles an hour on a a residential street that T-boned a an older gentleman in a car, and uh, the uh, there was three kids in, in the one car that my partner and I, on an ambulance, were initially assigned to, and we pulled all three of them out. And as part of our job, um, one of the uh, functions we perform is we, uh, we pronounce people that, you know, uh, you follow strict criteria, but once they meet that criteria, they're like, okay, we're not doing anything else for this person. And so my partner and I, we pulled three of the patients out of that car and all three of them were pronounced dead right there. And, uh, the fourth was then extricated from that vehicle and transferred to the hospital and said, okay. And then gentleman and the other call was, the car was transported, but died later. So I think four fatalities on the car on that call. And I guess the thing that kind of stuck with me on that is it's not the most terrible experience I've ever had, but the kids were close to my kid's age. Um, and, um, that was one of those circumstances where we did perform that CISD afterwards. And my partner and I on the ambulance, because we didn't transport one of the patients, got missed in that group. And uh, it was the first time in my entire career, I was like, oh wait, this thing's affecting me. I noticed uh, the next couple calls, like I was, I'm usually pretty patient with people, uh, but I noticed that my patience was not good. My partner actually noticed my patience was not good. And I noticed conversely that his wasn't either. And so we actually had to make a call like, Hey, uh, we're not doing all right. We need to talk to somebody. And, and so they pulled us aside and that same process just trying to talk through the circumstance, uh, and create narrative, uh, was very helpful. And so, yeah, those, those calls, they come. Um, and like I said, when they're a little bit more personal to you, uh, the other circumstances when you happen to know people or have developed a relationship and see them again or again, that's where it gets hard.
2: It's interesting, Ryan. Um, I, I, like I'm super impressed that they provide resources for you to be able to reach out and talk to someone um, because I, I think that that's probably something newer. I don't know if that's happened. I mean, is that, has that been something that they've offered from the beginning of your career? Or do you feel like that, that they are encouraging your profession to be more open and, and talk about things that you guys struggle with?
3: Um, so that part of it, that critical incident stress debriefing, has been part of my career from, from the beginning. Uh, well, uh, every since I started with with a fire department, um, that was not the case when I was working with uh, a, you know uh, an, a, earlier on in my career with an ambulance. Um, but that's been going, to, you know, for the last I don't know 15, 15 years. I, I've oh. definitely been part of that. It's it's gotten more uh, serious. In, in in the early on, it was kind of like, oh, someone said we're supposed to do this, let's do it. Um, but we've gotten a lot more intentional about it and. Uh, there's been a lot more, uh, you know, statistics or the, you know, um, mental health inside of first response kind of professions, police and fire and and EMS folks, um, is it's a it's a major problem, and uh, it's it's kind of come over, across everyone's desks the last few years. It's it's a lot more uh, prevalent in our conversation, and so um, I know we the people around me. I see I see kind of scrambling now to. Two, up their game as far as mental health and access to resources. But yeah, it's kind of always been there. It's just gotten a little bit more intentional, I think.
1: What, what are your thoughts? Like, again, just one almost awakened individual talking to another, but to somebody who sees death much more regular than the rest of us. Um, What are your thoughts on death? What are your thoughts on what, what death, what death means to you? What, how have you, how have you processed what that means? And I guess kind of where you're, where you're at in the present moment on uh, what death Dad. is. Well, um well. Just a,
2: just kind of a follow-up. Bill thinks that the last three minutes are like the worst, you know, just before you die.
1: Oh so Ryan I and I have talked you know. about this. I I've yeah, told Ryan, positive. this scares the I'm a positive guy. I I think I've had eight hours of depression in my entire 41 years. Um death scares the living out of me. You know what I mean? Like I am I've thought about those last three minutes and I keep asking people like, Hey, Mikels are those last three minutes going to be okay. And Hey Ryan, are those last three minutes going to be okay. And we have all these movies about, you know, the person just smiling as they drift off. I don't think that's how it happens. <laughs> um, your guys, you know, again, your thoughts on death.
3: Boy. Uh, well, and I think we're probably even talking about like the dying process here. Not necessarily. I mean, my thoughts on death, are I have my own beliefs about death, 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 right. But probably the dying process. Is that what you're getting at though?
1: Well, well, Mikkel brings up a dying process, and let's throw that out too. But just on this side of things, I'm scared that death is final, um, and and I and it does change how I interact with people in the here and now, day to day, because all all I know that I have is this moment, and maybe there is no next moment. Uh, so I want to ask about death, on uh, you know, like the 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 end, and and how you process that in your own head. And then Mikkel brought in the whole last three minutes of dying. So let's hit that too. Okay.
3: So, so as far as the death thing, uh, yeah, Bill, I think you and I have very similar beliefs on this. Um, I don't anticipate having, you know, something on the other side of, of death. Um, and, and I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I think it makes me a lot more, um, in the moment that makes me a lot more aware of where I'm at right now. I'm not putting off a lot of stuff to, you know, for the other side of death now, um, I don't know. Like if, if I die and something else is there afterwards, great. I'll take it, whatever it is. Right. But at the same time, it, um, I feel um, a lot more intentional in my day-to-day living. I feel um, a lot more uh, interested in, in the moment and where I'm at and the people I'm with and the, and the pleasures that life has to, um, has to offer now as a result of, of that kind of belief in, in death. Um, as far as the the dying process, um, is is it a, a, a beautiful thing? Is it a terrible thing? I'll say, yes, it's both. <laughs> I think there are deaths that are relatively silent and, you know, match up maybe a little bit better with what you see in movies, but you know, the vast majority of death actually has a little bit of ugliness to it. And, um, I don't think it does us any favors to romanticize it. Um, you know, most people, no matter how peaceful they are with, their thoughts of what comes after life um, struggle to stay alive. And that's, I don't, I think it's kind of hard to suppress that. And so um, yeah, dying can be ugly Uh, quite often is ugly. Um, And so uh, does that make me afraid of it? I don't know necessarily. There's a lot of things that are ugly in life that uh, we go through just fine. So I don't know. Good
1: question. (laughs) You know, we sometimes, we spiral out sometimes like if, if the last three minutes are the shittiest three minutes that I, that someone can experience is this is the 70 years leading up to it worth it. Right? Like, like these are the kind of things I sit at home at night and I'm sitting next to my wife watching television. I get lost in this spiral for, for five or six minutes of going like, like why even do this whole thing? Why, why go 70 years of mostly good times only to have these last three shitty minutes. And, and then all of it just comes to a close and the you that was part of this universe is no longer in existence. I, th- these are the spirals that uh, Bill Real gets lost in, um, that's, that's, that's pretty exactly regularly. Really. <laughs> it is. It happens pretty regularly. I, um, yeah, I, I, I never used I, to think about this stuff.
3: I, I think you're. I, I think it's good to be aware, right? That, 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 yeah, death can be ugly, right? But at the same time, I don't think it's worth worrying about. Uh, you know, back to that being in the moment thing, right? One of the beautiful things about the possibility of not, of there not being something after death is that we enjoy what we have now. And, and that same thing, you know, there's not a whole lot of use being caught up in the, um, the vagaries of what that's going to look like other than to know that it's coming, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So why not have the most fun while you can? Like, yeah, I don't know.
3: Yeah, that doesn't mean I, mean I need to go to Amsterdam and stick a needle in my arm. But, you know, at the no. same time, it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, no. But, but yeah, but absolutely, like, um, enjoying uh, enjoying the, the the simple pleasures of life. And honestly, they are. Most of them are simple pleasures. Um, being able to sit with friends and family and loved ones and experiencing, incredible experiencing great music, uh, movies, plays, all that kind of stuff. There's great pleasure in that. Um, and, and you appreciate more if you're not thinking about, well, gosh, you know. If this movie if I watch this movie, this movie is gonna make it so I can't have this afterlife. It's there's not a whole lot of point in that, I mean, at this point.
2: Yeah, Kelsey and I just watched a movie called Just Mercy. Have have you seen it?
0: Mm-hmm. I don't believe I have. Is that it's,
2: it's about a lawyer in the eighties and nineties who um tries to get wrongly convicted people off of death row. Oh wow. I have. It's really good. Um and in in the movie you see You know, of course, it's a reenactment of a a man who um, his appeal was rejected multiple times, and so he ends up going to be executed. And um, his cell, or the guy like neighboring his cell, um, the, the guy that's going to get executed had been to war and had severe PTSD, and so he would have panic attacks a lot. And the guy next to him would help him through this breathing process to try and get him to calm down and just be in the moment and it was interesting because they portrayed that in the movie um you know this guy's going to get executed they're putting him in the electric chair and the process of of that and he you see him remember what his friend taught him about breathing and calming down and um I I just think it's interesting that that we can do that. We have power over our emotions and, and our thought processes and, and maybe not at the end of life, but I still think that there, there's some beauty to understanding that circle that at some point it's going to happen to all of us. And, you know, I love how you point out, let's not worry about it right now, um, but let's not be in denial either.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, I guess it's one of those things that lives in tension or in balance. You, I mean, being aware of, again, that the realities of life, what it really, you know, how well our view of it actually maps on reality is important because it does create resilience. But at the same time, um, spending a lot of time and, and thought uh, about the worst parts of that probably doesn't do us a whole lot of good. And so um, it's like the Buddhist second arrow story, right? Like the, the first the first injury is or the poison arrow story, right? The first injury is the arrow and the second is the poison. And we can spend a lot of time poison ourselves with, with those thoughts, I guess.
2: Yeah, so I just want to ask one more question, and then I think Bill's got a question for you. How do you prep for going to work? Like, do you think about going to work? Are you, probably not, you probably live super in the moment, but I, I imagine I would like, oh, I got to go to work tomorrow, and I'm <laughs> sure shit's going to hit the fan at some point. Do you ever worry about that?
3: Um. Yeah, there are days, uh, right? So the vast majority of days, it's like anyone going to work. You know, I've had other jobs, and it's it's. You have days that you're like, oh man, it's good day to go to work, and other times you're like, uh, I really don't want to work right now. Um, but yeah, there are times when um, when I had, especially, I think when you have something that's kind of rattling around your head that you haven't processed yet, and you're you're going to a place where you know you're going to have to process more. Yeah, there's been times when um, you know I have a a commute, and that commute does help me kind of think through things. Um, but yeah, there's times when you hit the parking lot, man, oh boy. <laughs> there we go. But I think everyone has those kinds of experiences.
1: What are um, What are some of the most influential works for you that, that have been, you know, impactful on you? Books you've read, um, maybe, maybe certain podcasts or podcast episodes that you've listened to. Um, I guess I'm just trying to see what kind of things outside of, you know, we've talked a lot about your career, but, yeah. you know, as an awakened person, what are some of the the things that have been most influential um, to that development and to your view today?
3: Well, um, you know, actually one of the things is just friends and good conversation, because I do come across a lot, just having good conversations with, with friends, not just the way things that they share with me, but the things that kind of come out as, as we have conversations. And so just having good people around me has been very, very, very helpful to, uh, to kind of uh, develop my worldview a little bit more. Um, as far as things I engage in, I, I read a lot of books. I have a lot of time. Well, I say I listen to a lot of books because I have a lot of time on my vehicle. Um, some of those, um, I love Jonathan Haidt. I think he's been very influential to me. Um, Yuval Harari, The Sapiens and Homadeus. Um, I am a huge fan of Sam Harris. I love his podcast. I enjoy, enjoy uh, I've read a couple of his books. I really enjoy that. Um, recently read, uh, Robert Sapolsky's Behave, which was, incredible. Uh, I think being life-changing I'd say. Um, yeah, those are, those are some of those that, uh, kind of popping in my head as, as ones that not only have I read, but I've revisited several times and, uh, and kind of revisited and, and learned
1: a lot from those, those different, uh, influences. Love it. Love it. Um, I think that's, you know, that's part of the awakened life is just continually to continuing to learn. And, like you say, if you've got a little bit of a a commute to get to your work and back and forth, it gives you some time to sit and to take in new information. I I love just learning new things and having talked to you, I know Mikel does having talked to you. I know that you just like to learn. You like to engage new views and and be challenged by new things and have people who believe different things in you kind of bring those out and have a chance to kind of wrestle with that. I think that's, that's the awakened life. Um, Mikael, do you have anything else that you wanted to ask Ryan? Is there anything else that's kind of on your mind? Oh, you're on mute. Yeah. Sorry.
2: sorry. I think Ryan's just one of the most calm um, people that I know. Uh, um, just and super smart. I love picking your brain. I love having talks with you and and seeing where, um, like, what you're learning and what you think. And I I like I've had one experience with a first responder, um, and it was from a car accident when I was a kid. And like, I can't say enough. I'm uh, just gratitude for what you do and the person that you are. And I think it takes a lot of guts and a lot of um, knowledge to be able to do what you do and handle the variety of emergency situations that you face. And so, you know, I never got a chance to thank the first responder that helped me when I was a kid. So just thank you for what you do.
3: Thanks, Mikhail.
1: Yeah, some somebody has to come in in tragedy and make the best of it. And, um, whether it's a fire, a firefighter, whether it's, whether it's a, a paramedic, that's really your main job is to come into stressful, tragic situations and help the rest of us make the best of it. Um, man, I, that, that's, that's a spiritual work in some ways, you know, as I'm sitting here kind of thinking about that. So like Mikhail said, I just would extend the thanks as well. And, um, Appreciate that you chose that as your as your thing to do. We all have to do something, and you chose that as your thing to do. Um, there are there are important jobs, and then there are really important jobs, and you've got one of those. So thank you. Um, favorite song, Ryan? Like, what's the song we should play? What's what's the song on your mind right now, or something that uh, oh, wow. strikes you as a way to close out the podcast?
3: <laughs> Boy, Bill uh that's the hardest question you've asked me tonight. Today, <laughs> 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 I was not prepared for that. Um, hey, I'll defer to you guys. Um, yeah, I'm, I, uh, I, I enjoy music, but think, uh, gosh,
1: I'm not ready for that.
2: Do you have a favorite? Have, uh, like how yes. about this one? How
1: about this one? Uh, Wish you were here, Pink Floyd. Wish you were here, Pink Floyd. Mm-hmm. Uh, awesome. We'll do that, Ryan. We're gonna let you go. We're gonna talk for a minute here with uh, with you off away from the podcast, um, but. I can't wait till the social distancing thing is over and I can enjoy a beer with you and, uh, and just have a good time and, and just kind of get back into your space again, my friend. Yeah. I look forward to that.
2: <laughs> Tell Laura hi. We miss you. Yeah.
3: It's both of you guys. I'll let her know. Okay. Let her know for sure.
1: Take it easy, my friend. Love All you. Right, guys. Love you too. So Mikel, what do you yeah. think? What's Ryan, Ryan, you know, I, you're in the health field and mm-hmm. I take that seriously. You, you, You work to help people get better. You deal with illness. You're talking to people who are not well. They they need something addressed. Um, But again, I think you pointed to it like these frontline people on the most tragic moments on a daily basis. It's a it's a whole other game than um, it's a whole other game. Like none of us deal with that kind of stress, like life or death moments at least weekly and sometimes daily, probably for some days on end.
2: Right, right. Thoughts there. I can't imagine um, his job, and and you know, I, I wouldn't. That's a position I wouldn't be able to cope well with. Just knowing myself, and you know, I'm already an anxious person to begin with, and so, constantly being faced with um, those tense types of situations, I don't think I would handle handle well. So I'm grateful that there are people that can do it.
1: Yeah, my my ego is soothed by the fact that I have way more success than failure at my job. And I have to imagine in a job where even when you are on your A game, people die, people die. Um, To go home having done your best and and personally you succeeded, but the narrative in front of you is that you failed. Um, I can't imagine the kind of angst and stress that comes along with that um the rest of us the rest of us get to feel successful at least a, a significant portion of the time as we as we fix things or succeed at things or at the very minimum kick the can down the street for someone else to go address you know
2: i think that would have been you know that maybe that's a follow-up question we ask ryan at some point is like even if someone does end up passing away or the situation is is more dire and you're not able to resolve it, like, what does success look like to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it's it's you've done all you can, and you did your best, and even though the outcome was different than what you envisioned, um, maybe that still gets to be counted as a success. I don't mm. know. And I think mm. maybe that's a lesson we need to learn ourselves. Just yeah. Because, just because it doesn't end up the way we want it to, does, does that really mean it's a failure?
1: Right. If if we were healthy in the way we interacted in any given moment of our life, the outcome really isn't the measure of whether we succeeded or not. Right. Yeah. I think that's pretty deep. That's a that feels like a really a really deep kind of thing t- for all of us to kind of arrive at.
2: Yeah, I had I'll I'll tell you this, bill, you asked me earlier what I was working on. Um this week has been such a roller coaster. Um and I've been up and down just more down than up, but anyway, I I was having a like meltdown moment, and Kelsey Kelsey is just doing her usual thing, which she's super good at, is just holding me and loving me and helping me through those moments. But she said something, and she said this before, but for some reason, um, it was like a light bulb this time, and I I have this perception that the people that I'm close to, they have to put up with me, they have to, you know. There's there's just certain things that they have to just put up with. And um, so I said to Kelsey, I'm so grateful that you put up with me. And she was like, Mikel, I don't put up with you. I don't. I choose to go through those things with you. But I, I, I enjoy those moments that I get to to go through those hard things with you. And her saying that was like... I don't know. It was a light bulb. I heard it for, differently for the first time than I've ever heard it. And I think that that's really important. The people that, that we love and who love us, they don't put up with us.
1: Right. It's it's a positive thing to have the people we love in our space. And while all of us wish it was all good times all the time, that's not realistic. That's not human. Um You know, somewhere, somewhere out in the middle of the forest is a tree that's only had good days, but, but us humans, we're going to have bad moments. We're going to have tragedy. We're going to see loss. We're going to see ourselves in our, in our worst moments. We're going to see others in their worst moments. Um, Part of life is to experience that with somebody and especially those that we care about. Mm. Mm. Well, a good conversation this morning. I enjoyed uh, talking to Ryan um i always enjoy seeing your face and having the conversation with you a uh, lot of fun so Same. we're gonna yeah we'll end this but for those listening in the audio version uh get ready to rock out to some pink floyd wish you were here okay. so play the music everybody check us out Almostawakened.org. dot if you like what you're listening to please donate um this is this is a different thing than the kinds of things topics that i've talked about in the past um we're just excited to hear from our listeners. We get messages from you guys. We love you. We're glad you're listening. Um, if you have a certain topic you want to see us cover or you want to see uh, or you have a certain response to the things we're talking about, don't don't hesitate to message us. Um, you can you can do that through the podcast website or you can email us at podcast at gmail.com. Mikael, love you to death. Have a great week. and yeah, I wish uh, I
2: could see you guys soon.
1: I know. Let's do it. Pick a day. Let's do it. I can't wait. Okay, What's have fun. Is,
2: like social distancing is over.
1: <clears throat> yeah, this thing has got to end, and when it does, I I am gonna make sure that our group throws the largest party we've ever had. Yeah. Uh, and I, there may be people that never make it back to their house; they just pass <laughs> out on kitchen floors. We'll see what happens.
2: Yeah, I will tell you, it's funny. you mentioned that because that one of the times that I've interacted with Ryan, I did get too drunk, and he carried me to the car with a garbage <laughs> bag around my head, so I didn't puke all over the car. So that may happen again.
1: Hey, there we go. First responder, even off the job. I love it. There we go. The fireman carrying somebody. This has been another Almost Awakened
0: episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes. Make a donation to keep this podcast running. Email us a question or comment. Or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit NoNonsenseSpirituality.com to meet with Certified Spiritual Director, Brittany Hartman.